You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Cyber CEOs Decoded, where we speak with CEOs from established security giants to up and coming disruptors, getting the inside track on what makes a cybersecurity company tick. I'm your host, Mark von Zadeloff, the CEO of Devo. And today my guest is Patrick Morley, cybersecurity board member, advisor, and former CEO of Carbon Black. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Great to be here. Thanks for being here as well. So, Patrick, uh, you were the CEO of Carbon Black for almost 15 years and saw the company through a lot of changes. Uh, but you didn't start out in cybersecurity. And during these discussions, I always like to start with just going way back to your background and how you got into cybersecurity. But let's go way back. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, I'm kind of local. I uh, outside the I consider it the Boston metro area, but I actually grew up in New Hampshire, uh, southern New Hampshire, and um, and Boston was the was the big city. And I always thought someday, uh, if I was lucky enough, I'd end up here. And and I ended up here, and I I stayed here my whole career, which is actually an accomplishment as well uh, these days. Amazing. And did you grow up from a, a family of entrepreneurs and or academics, or what was kind of the family background? My father uh, was a was a dentist. Uh, in fact, he just retired in his late seventies. And uh, my oh. mom worked worked in the home, worked really hard. I have, I have one sibling, and uh, I grew up uh, where I grew up was definitely the country. I grew up on a dirt road, uh, which you couldn't use in the spring, and next to a cow farm. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it was great. It was, it was a great place to be. Uh, and my, my family, my father was the first person to go through to university and, and then obviously, uh, went to extra schooling to become a dentist. Uh, my grandparents were all immigrants, uh, three of them, uh, from Canada, uh, one from Ireland and, um, and I had one grandfather in particular, my mother's father, who was super entrepreneurial and had a big, big influence on me. Um, I didn't realize that until I, I, I was older, until I was in college, just coming out of college, the influence he had. But he ran every business under the sun, uh, and he used to talk to me about it all the time. He ran gas stations and grocery stores and bars and printing companies and uh, lots of different companies and and uh, and told a lot of stories about the good times. And most of them were funny stories, but uh, a lot of stories about that. And it really hooked me when I was young. But of course, again, I didn't realize that until later when you're starting to think through from a career standpoint, what you're passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. But all of a sudden you remember that grandfather with all his stories about being an entrepreneur and you realize maybe you're, you're, uh, you're in the same situation later in your life. Yeah, you get it through osmosis, right? That's true with how we raise our kids and, and life in general. I think a lot of times you don't realize you're getting it. And then all of a sudden you you, you look back and, and you realize how important some of those moments were. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. Um, what was your first meaningful paid job? Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, my first meaningful paid job was uh, I was a bag boy at uh, at Shaw's Supermarket in, uh, in Gosstown, New Hampshire. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty incredible when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure. I mean, I, I my first meaningful job was being a caddy. So I very, both of those jobs are very service oriented. So I, I imagine you experience all sorts of nice and not nice customers in that job. 
Yeah, that's right. I will say though that during college, uh, this is this just says something about when I went to school. But I, I was actually in the Teamsters Union, uh, and I delivered beer for four years uh, during college and uh, every summer. And I made almost enough every summer to pay for college, uh, which is inconceivable now for so many of our young employees who who owe uh, incredible amounts of money for college education. I mean, we could do it differently back then. Yeah, agreed, agreed. In the end, you spent more than 20 years in technology. I seem to remember you got your start at IBM. Is that right? I did. Actually, I, I good, yeah, good memory. I, I uh, and you and I have talked about this in the past. I uh, graduated from school uh, with a degree in computers, math and computer science. And uh, I got out and I started actually as a programmer for General Electric. And I programmed for exactly six months uh, increasingly realized that at least the area that I was doing uh, programming, uh, uh, which was systems programming. So well, it, was pretty, it was pretty boring stuff. And pretty I, dry stuff, yeah. Pretty dry stuff. And so I went over to IBM. Uh, that would have been in the late 80s. I went to IBM. And, and at the time, you know, IBM, not to say it's not now, but at that time at least, IBM had an amazing program in many areas of their business uh, for helping you know, young people kind of grow and learn quickly. And in my particular one, I, I, you know, I went into the sales program at IBM. And it was a, it was a really, it was a great experience. Amazing. Yeah. I, as you know, I spent quite some time at IBM much, much later in, uh, in both of our careers. And uh, I think that it has that reputation of being able to build, uh, you know, the skill sets of, of young people coming in there. Yep. That's right. That's awesome. And so walk me through because you, you were at IBM for a while, but then eventually you kind of headed off on your own with, with roles at smaller companies, a number of small companies, and eventually moving to your first CEO role. Walk me through that journey. Yeah. I, well, I, I realized quickly, actually, even when I was at IBM that I wanted to, I wanted to run my own company. And, and at that time I looked at, uh, I actually looked at a number of different companies to buy into franchises at the time that were non-tech oriented uh, because I really wanted to do my own thing and I wanted to run my own company. I had uh, had a mentor, a woman uh, at IBM who had been at IBM for many years, who actually was the first person to talk to me about, okay, well, what, 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 what could I go do? And her, I'll never forget being at lunch with her and her telling me about uh, this thing called a startup. Uh, now you have to remember back, this would have been in the eighties, late eighties and, um, companies like Microsoft and Lotus and Ashton Tate and, and many other kind of tech startups, that was a new thing. And, uh, and so that put the bug in my ear to say, okay, if I can go to somewhere small, I can learn faster. I can grow my career faster. And that's what I did. And over the last 25 years or so, I, I've done, uh, I've done five early stage companies, uh, during my career. And of those five, uh, I was very fortunate. Four of them, four of them, uh, became public companies. Eventually, uh, all four of them were acquired eventually on average, those startups, uh, I was at those companies three to four years and, uh, except for carbon black, where I was there for a total of, of, uh, 14 or 15 years, uh, but it was a great experience doing these startups and, and being somewhere where people don't think about startups as being a new thing. But back then there weren't as many. And that idea of learning quickly and uh, having the opportunity to experience a lot of different aspects of a business is uh, very powerful for your career. For you, four times uh, at companies that went public, that's actually pretty remarkable. I, I was thinking about that uh, 
and there aren't many people who have experienced that four times. No, but you have to put it into perspective too. Again, uh, times change, right? The first company yeah. I was with that went public, we went public in 1996 on, um, that company was SQA run by Ron Nordine. And we went public on 11 or $12 million of trailing revenue. We had just gotten a break even just I mean, think of that 11 or 12 in, in trailing. And now if you're on, if you're, if you're a hundred, they think, yeah. oh, you're, you know, you don't, you don't have enough size yet. You need Someday. to be closer yeah. to 200. Yeah. yeah. So different world. Fortunately, saw that, that you know, saw the kind of the changing dynamics of, of what it took to go public from the early or the mid nineties up to where we are uh, now. Uh, Carbon Black went public in 2018. So that would have been 20 something years later. Uh, and, um, you know, we were much, much larger, obviously, than, than SQA was at the time. Yeah. It's like everything has become supersized in, in the modern era, right? That both the size you have to be to get to an IPO, but also the amount of money that's available to raise before that. So everything has kind of gotten bigger. That's a great way to say it. Uh, everything is supersized. But you were able to raise money in those days. There were VCs and there was, you know, there was the same kind of basics, right? But it was just, as we were discussing, kind of uh, uh, the sizes were smaller at the time. Yeah, it was the same, but it was, it was different in that uh, today, uh, I, I think for founders and for, for CEOs, uh, I think the experience right now is a different experience than it was in the 90s. In the 90s, the, the venture community was still relatively new. And while they partnered with you, there was more of a little bit of an us versus them relationship versus the partnering you see now. I equate it to the way more recently we've seen the, the PE firms change, right? So in the yeah. early 90s, venture guys would be like, you know, venture people, though many of them were, most of them were men at the time and still are, but uh, a lot of questions uh, and a bit of cynicism about, well, why are you going to be able to make it yeah. versus today? It's like, oh, we're going to do it and we'll help you do it and we'll do it together. The VCs changed, I, I, I think, uh, post the bubble burst in 2000, where they really became much more uh, aligned with the founder, aligned with the CEO. How are we going to do this together? You started that same progression on the PE firms today, where the private equity firms, again, used to be much viewed much more, I don't want to say negative. Yeah, negatively. Yeah. Uh, hey, Maybe these guys are pretty. Antagonistic, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, right on, right on. And today, it's different. I think that's right. I, I actually spent a little bit of time myself uh, after business school being a venture capitalist before realizing, like, you know, I wanted to go and, and run something. But uh, if you just look at the term sheets and the terms back in, for me, it was the late 90s, early 2000s, there were more antagonistic terms, right? You do a preferred preference with one or one or two times uh, preference in it. And the whole reason for that was because you weren't quite sure if the entrepreneur really was, you know, going to do what uh, he or she promised. And so exactly. if you look at the term sheets now, they're much cleaner and, and more entrepreneurial friendly. So I think that's that speaks to exactly what you're saying. What's interesting is you don't realize you've seen that whole that whole journey of the changes of these the industry until you kind of start to look back and and again, you, you start you talk to talk to younger founders or you talk to you know the investors today, you just see how much things have changed. And I actually think again, it's a great environment today to build companies uh, uh, and different than where we were at, but, but it's a great environment. Yeah, no, I agree. Now, if you, I want to get to Carbon Black because that was just such an amazing story and, and part, big part of your story. But before we do that, these four companies that you're at before you got to Carbon Black that all also did well, if you look back on that, 
were there certain components of your personal success? If you look back and say, why was Patrick Morley successful, you know, four times? And I'm sure many small failures and setbacks in between, but in general, those four companies did well. When you look back on your own contribution there, was there a, a kind of a silver lining or a thread to the things that you did that consistently allowed you to succeed there? Well, I, I, um, I'd like to tell you, I had a, I had a, uh, a genius plan <laughs> uh, at the time. Imagine this when I was looking in the nineties for some of these jobs, uh, it was pre-internet. Imagine that. Right. So remember trying to find a job then very different, right? You go in the globe or your local paper and you look at all the help wanted, or you knew somebody who knew somebody. And I had a couple key criteria. Again, I really wanted to start my own company. And so one of my key criteria was super simple, which was go as small as I can, because my belief was if I go small, I'll learn more faster because in the end, I don't want to be here. I want to be running my own thing. And then the second big criteria uh, was I wanted to be local to headquarters. Again, right. imagine that totally different yeah. today in today's world where we are. But at the time I said, I want to be, I want to work at headquarters. Uh, and then third, I wanted to be in a situation where I, I could progress at least as an outsider coming into a company, I could progress if I achieved and I thought I would uh, as fast as I could. And I kind of use those as a, as a baseline. At my first startup SQA, I worked for someone who at the time said, hey, I know you really want to start your own company, but rather than do that, why not, why not use an investor's money, progress your career and go run something in tech? And that would, again, been in the mid-90s. And then that became my goal. I said, hey, that's what I'm going to go do. I'm going to do everything I can in order to run a company I did before Carbon Black. I actually ran a company uh, called Improvada, yeah, uh, here locally in Boston as well. Went there with with funding, but no product, no sales. Just a team of I don't know twelve or thirteen engineers. I was there for a number of years, and then handed the reins over to my partner there, Omar Hussein, who who ran it and brought it public. Use that criteria, and that helped you to make sure that you had uh, a good probability of success. Awesome. So uh, Improvada and a couple more, or maybe one more experience, but eventually you do end up at Carbon Black. And I'd love to understand how you, you got to Carbon Black. How did you discover that opportunity and, and end up uh, a CEO there? And it wasn't called Carbon Black at the time. I, I, I do remember that. That's right. It was called Bit9. Yeah. And I went to Bit9 in 2007. And when I had been at Improvada, Improvada was in the identity management space and certainly part of the overall security. But we have to remember back when I was at Improvada, which would have been 2001 or 2002, something like that, maybe 2002. Uh, at the time, security was really a niche play. And in fact, most security leaders were not, quote, security leaders. It was really uh, typically like a, a director of network security or a manager of, of network uh, security. And they were typically down in a closet in the basement of the company and no one really talked to them a lot. Just make sure we're safe and don't talk to anybody. There were no CISOs at the time. So when I was at Improvada, I, I was on the identity side, but I kept looking at what was going on on the antivirus side and the way antivirus worked. And I had seen earlier in my career, the creation of, of AV uh, back in the 90s. And I, I looked at the attacks that were happening when I was in Improvada, and I, I looked at that side of security and said, 
that is an interesting place to be right now. That is ripe for disruption because the core tech, the way it was built, was built actually pre-internet. The original AV was built pre-internet, and you could see the attack, the, the numbers of attacks going up just exponentially. And so I wanted to get over on that side. Uh, I knew the, the, the first CEO of Carbon Black uh, at the time, Bit9, George Kasabji. I knew the investors, and one thing led to another, and the next thing I knew I was running Bit9 in 2007. And it, I think nowadays it's just, you know, everybody says that AV is is dead and useless, but to bet your career on that in 2007 is a wholly different uh, uh, thing to do. So that that's a different time. Well, right. And at the time, uh, Semantic and McAfee were just giants, uh, giants. that, yeah, that didn't, didn't really have a lot of perceived weakness. And in fact, at the time, they were consolidating vast you know, areas, niches of, of different security on the endpoint uh, or on the server side. And, um, and the core premise of Bit9, which is interesting, was rather than try and figure out what's bad, what's malware, let's only trust, let's only allow trusted software to run on the device. That was the core premise, and it was called whitelisting at the time we created that category. Now, it turned out to be much harder than, than we had anticipated uh, when we first started off on that journey. Uh, but interestingly enough, you fast forward, that was 2007, where we are today, the, the whole concept, one of the industry terms you see a lot out there in cyber today is, is zero trust. We essentially were doing zero trust in 2007, but we didn't have that cool term. We just had the term whitelisting. But you were betting, ag- and uh, you were betting against the big guys, the antivirus guys, and and you and I, in that sense, uh, were in a similar position because I was just getting started, acquired into IBM at the time. Not to uh, go off at a tangent here, Patrick, but I I remember we pitched the idea of starting IBM Security with the same premise, which is that we needed something better than antivirus and firewalls. The only big companies when you and I were doing this back then in the cyberspace were either antivirus companies, Symantec, uh, Trend, McAfee, or firewall companies, right? Uh, Checkpoint and uh, Cisco, especially, Palo Alto emerging. And so they were, it's kind of the infrastructure players were the only big ones and they had their, their solutions that were invented prior to the internet, as you said. And you were making a bet that there was going to be a different way to do it. And I was doing a different bet uh, with, uh, as you know, with security analytics uh, while at IBM, but but your bet was on doing something better than, than AV here. And the, the other bet we were both making at that time, Mark, uh, was the changing dynamics of the cyberspace. Again, looking where we all are today, it's a little hard to rewind the clock 15, 16 years ago and imagine a time when, even in 2007, most companies did not have CISOs. Most people could never have imagined that uh, cyber spending would go from where it was, which most companies at the time were spending maybe 1% of their IT budget was on security. To where it is today, you've got Seven, eight percent, and many of the financial services companies, you got you got ten, twelve percent of the overall IT budget is is being spent on security. Couldn't imagine that kind of exponential growth no. there either. No, and it's been very good on the client, you know, on the on the client side, like you said, at banks and at all of our customers. One of my favorite CISOs over in Europe uh, told me a story that he had two job options around this time, and people said he was crazy for accepting the head of IT security, and now he's got you know, 500 person cybersecurity team and a big title. And it's been amazing for his career. So I think uh, you're right that those roles didn't exist back then the way they do now. I think cyber is one of the top three most exciting areas of tech, bar none. 
And of the three, it is the most mission-driven. It is so powerful in the mission of what you're trying to do as a security company because you, it's, it's very visceral because you read about it every day in the news. Uh, you are talking to customers every single day who are trying to protect their organization. And so the mission really comes alive in cyber, which I understood in 2007, but I did not fully appreciate the way I do now the power of that for me personally. And I also think for, for, for my employees, and again, I'm sure you see that from where you sit too. Yeah, no, I know. I agree. I always, when I explain to people outside of cyber, why I like it, I say at any software space, for example, you have to beat your competitors and please your customers. And in cyber, there's this third, you know, very random variable called the hacker that you have to add to that. And you have to please your customers, beat your competitors and outpace the hackers and and have a mission to to do that. So I think it's in that sense that, you know, some of my friends who are in biotech uh, curing cancer, I think we have that kind of mission, not to compare uh, maybe that, that noble thing to cybersecurity, but we have that mission of doing something that will really help the world if we get it right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So you're at Carbon Black, and um, maybe let's start with uh, just getting there, settling in, and you know, back to, did you have to go fundraising right away? Was it easy to do that? Kind of what were some of the early challenges that you had there? Yeah, when I got to Bit9 at the time, yeah. uh, we there were 20-something employees and um, under $100,000 in revenue, handful of customers, product didn't work that well because it, it was quite hard to do what we were doing at the time. And um, I did not need funding right away, but I got there in the midst of, of uh, the real estate uh, crisis, the financial crisis uh, of 07, 08, and uh, the the recession at the time, and so we suddenly went into a situation where you're you want to drive and grow the business. And while we certainly did grow the business, it was a harder slog than we thought. And some of that was because of macroeconomic issues with the economy globally, and in the financial crisis. And the other aspects were we were still trying to figure out uh, a product market fit for again at the time what we called whitelisting. It was a few years of, of, of challenge, keeping the team together. Uh, as you know, typically when you go in somewhere, you'll, you'll look at the team and you'll, you'll make some, some changes. But then we really were focused on trying to figure out where the repeatability was in the model and making sure we got the product to where it satisfied all of our customers and it did what it was supposed to do. And that journey was longer than it should have been, uh, twists and turns. And again, in a slightly, not a slightly, in a very different funding environment uh, than, than we're in today. We did not raise money for the first couple of years, but then I needed money, but we weren't seeing ex- exactly the traction we wanted. I did uh, over the years, a couple of times, I did bridge loans yeah. to see around the next corner. We had an offer to sell the company uh, back in, I don't remember exactly what year. I want to say that was 2010, maybe, uh, maybe 11, somewhere in there. We decided not to do that but definitely some twists and turns. And as an outsider, when you look at a company, it's very easy to say, oh, look, look at the way that thing goes up into the right. Yeah. And I used to say to all of my employees that you know, an X, if you draw an X, Y axis, you want to draw a straight line up into the right. But the truth is every company, uh, there's a roller coaster inside of that line. You've got some great quarters, some not so great quarters, some great years, some not so great years. And it, that's why it takes tremendous stamina 
and resilience for uh, you know a team and for a CEO and a founder to to kind of bring a company up and through. And you have to be really passionate about your beliefs to do it. So we, yeah. we definitely saw some of that in the early years at Bit9. Yeah, I, I think you you've seen it all, and I can relate to that in my role here at Devo. Is that uh, is uh, lots of detail below the surface in terms of uh, what's happening and, and highs and lows. So I definitely get that. One of the moments I wanted to zoom in on, and I think at the time you were probably no more than a, a couple of miles from my office, and I remember just opening the paper and, and reading about a, a breach. It was around 2012 that Bit9 had experienced a breach, and you, I think, did a very admirable job leading through that. I mean, the fact that the company survived to to have an amazing uh, several other chapters speaks to it. But walk us through the 2012 breach that Bit9 experienced. I'll just take a step back and just there was about an 18 month period there where we had tremendous highs and tremendous lows and again the the power of working at 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 smaller companies is the fact that the highs are higher and the lows can be lower we got funded by sequoia we took a nice round again at the time from sequoia who i was really excited to bring on as an investor in 2012 yeah, yeah. so that was a high Right after I brought him on, we missed the bookings number for the quarter. Not didn't feel so good. I remember making that call and saying, "Hey, FYI, before the quarter closed, I want to let you know. Again, great investors. This is why I always tell everyone: get great investors. Great investors have strong fortitude." And I'm yeah. like, "Yep, okay, we got it, and we're we're good. We're good. We believe in the in the uh, in what we're investing in." And then in in that's right. In 2012, we actually announced it in thir- we found it in 13, but. Bit nine at the time, uh, we had about 600 customers. Kevin Mandia called me. One thing led to another, and we realized that the, the Chinese had hacked us, a very advanced group, in order to get to a couple of our customers in particular. And that was one of those things where uh, I had been at the company for five years, and you, we had really started to see sales start to grow. We were growing well over 100% a year over the last couple of years. Yeah. Our company was much bigger at the time, and I thought, oh, my God, do we lose the company? How do the customers react? And, and we did exactly what you said, which was we made the decision to go out and be 100% transparent with the industry and with our customers. In retrospect, it looks very easy, but at the time, I was scared. We, we knew we had the right thing to do. It's still, it's still scary. And we did it. Uh, and I, I personally called close to 100 customers. We called every single customer. So all 600 wow. customers, I'll never forget, we had all effort there. We talked to all 600 customers. When like In like a couple of days, just call them all. It was two days. It was a two-day, three-day effort. Yep, that's right. And, and did any customers just summarily, you know, say, I, I'm done? I mean, we must have had some that just said, I'm done. Do you know we didn't lose one customer? Unbelievable. Yeah. Again, I think a lot of that has to do with, it's a credit, there's a credit to us, but really it's a credit to the, the type, to, to the reality of, of cyber. When we, you talk to CISOs, when you talk to, to, to him or her and you tell them the, the situation and you're totally transparent and your you know, leaders recognize, uh, they see it as cyber leaders, you understand how tough our jobs are. And honestly, I think it made us a much better company yeah. because we were walking in the shoes of our customers in a way that, that we never had before. And it made that mission element even more important than ever. I, I think we all admired how you guys got through that at the time. I just remember 
having deep uh, sympathy for for what you guys were going through. But I didn't realize that not a single customer walked. And I think that is that's an amazing stat. And I wonder, you know, when solar winds happened, and again, we could probably spend another hour on 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 this topic uh, alone. But I remember just thinking it it sounded quite similar, in fact, to what happened to you guys in terms of trying to take advantage of of a company that had footprint on an endpoint to infiltrate key accounts uh, from a hacker perspective. And uh, you know, as everybody was saying, "Oh my gosh, this is crazy solar winds!" I remember just thinking, oh, "It's happened before, right?" Uh, and if you're in the industry long enough, uh, you start seeing the patterns. One of the other things I learned uh, through that journey at, at Bit Nine was we were we essentially built tech that only allowed uh, good processes, good things to run, trusted things to run, which meant that we could we could block things. And what I what we realized is that uh, while very important and and super powerful, many of our customers are also using us to watch what was happening on the device. So they would they would get a ping from a network device. You, you mentioned uh, Cisco earlier and Checkpoint. They would see something on a firewall and they would know that it went somewhere and they would be looking for it on a device. They would use us to replay the event. Well, what just happened on Mark's machine? So we pulled the company increasingly, we were still doing prevention, blocking things, but increasingly we were adding more capabilities to actually record, to watch what was happening and provide the SOC team with better fidelity. And I ran into a company called Carbon Black that summer and I had the opportunity uh, and I, in one week, had three different people, customers, talk to me about this tech and Carbon Black had essentially built the, the first EDR product endpoint detection and response product. Again, amazing to think that was there was a first on that, but built the first product. I reached out to Mike Viscuso, the founder, and, uh, and at first he didn't want to meet with me. Eventually we met and we really connected about what we were trying to do. And we brought the companies together in the beginning of 2014, I think that was. Very hard to get done, by the way. Two private companies coming together. I, I know for people who haven't had the roles that you and I have had, they probably don't realize it's very hard to align shareholders and the right price for the the business and the right roles for people coming in. So I assume there was some good complexity to it. Yeah. And again, a lot of it comes down to what's the mission of what you're trying to do and how do the I'm sure you do too. I have a set of core beliefs or philosophies that I've I've built over the years of running a company, uh, running companies, running teams, not just as CEO, but in multiple roles. A lot of it comes down to who we are as humans. Where, where are we trying to go? What's, what's the mission and vision of what we're trying to do? And then who are the people involved? And if you can figure those things out, if, you, if you're aligned there, then that's a big chunk of getting, quote, getting a deal done. That's true if I'm selling to a customer. That's also true if I'm bringing private to privates together, which, as you said, are really difficult, way more difficult than doing it to the public. Yeah, no, exactly. And you guys, again, my memory is you guys really started getting momentum. I mean, this is a, this is a particularly good idea for the company, uh, acquiring Carbon Black. And eventually it was such a good idea that you changed the name Bit9 to Carbon Black. Yep, that's right. With the Carbon Black product, small team, the core team came out of the NSA. They were actually hackers. They were actually going out and making sure that the government systems are safe, but they were trained as hackers and they built a product to find themselves. And we brought that product uh, from about 40 customers. When we closed the deal to a year later, we had 1,200. 
So from 40 to 1200. So very exciting, but also fraught with a lot of challenges as you as you try and scale that uh, so fast. Again, a lot of great lessons learned. Very exciting, a lot of fun, and a lot of work. Now, I want to pause there. I mean, you just had, was that your, I mean, not to get too geeked out on, on, on uh, sales execution, but that is a sales and product execution miracle right there. You must have had an established channel that you were able to just leverage uh, to make that happen. We certainly had distribution channels through partners. We also had, a, I, I think, a, a well-tuned, relatively well-tuned uh, sales process at the time. And when we put the, the Carbon Black product into it, it really popped because there was such a great product market fit. And we had the sales distribution. I, one of the things I always say to, to, to other CEOs and other sales leaders is, again, you'll recognize this, is that a lot of times you look at the the, the pedigree of, of an individual or of a team who who have had the you know the good fortune of being in in spots where the product market fit is so strong, and not to take anything away from the salespeople, but you you say, oh my God, they must be unbelievable sellers. My experience from my own career is that the times when I when I was selling products that were a little tougher on the product market fit. Maybe they weren't a must-have. They were still a nice-to-have. Maybe there wasn't actually budget dollars set aside yet for that category because it was a new category. Those situations on the go-to-market side, you had to do every single thing right on the sales process. And if you missed one thing, you lost the deal. And so that was us at bit nine. And then you take the carbon black product in, you put it into the channel and into our, you know, go to market channel and boom, it really took off again, a credit to our sellers to the, and also a credit to the product team, uh, who, you know, the carbon black team built a great product, but then we had a, as a combined team, we had to scale the heck out of that product. Yeah. It's an amazing, amazing story. And I'll keep us moving along, but I want to just uh, you know, get to two other phases of the company. You got to uh, an IPO, uh, and, and maybe we start there. IPO, I think, around 2018. Yep, had the good fortune uh, to bring the company public in, in, in 2018. And uh, a, a nice milestone for any company. My core belief is that and you can especially see it in today's world that an IPO is just another funding event. And, and as you know, you could say, okay, I, you can get as much in the private markets as you can from the public markets today. Yeah. So you could make a decision to say, I don't want to be public. I, I'm going to stay private and I'm just going to raise that exact same amount of money. Maybe I'm even going to raise more. At the time, we made the decision to bring the company public, so to, to access public capital markets as opposed to private capital markets. It was an amazing milestone, uh, and it is for every company because, in in essence, in some ways, it's a little bit of a coming out party, and and it really does help your brand. It had more of a brand impact than I I gave it credit for, and if you're passionate about the company you're running and you love the company you're running and what you're trying to do to help your customers out there, bringing a company public is awesome. You know, there's some challenges with it, uh, having to hit the quarters after that, etc. Uh, make sure you, you you do what you say you're going to do. But it was an awesome experience. At that point, I had been at the company 11 or 12 years. So it, it had been a long run, and, and I was very proud of what we had built. I'm still extreme, extremely proud of what we built. Amazing. Yeah, I think uh, given that Devo is a pre-IPO company, I think I'll have many more uh, reasons to give you a call in the next coming years to hear even more about that. I mean, 
as you said, it's, everything seems like a straight shot from the outside. I assume even the IPO, there was, were there ever moments where it's like, we're not going to make it, the market's going to close, or you know, we might miss a, a month or a quarter? Or I mean, did you ever have moments in that process where it was, it was uh, risky? Or, or in the end, once you decided to go, you had the runway clear to go to get off? At the time that we went, we were going through a transition. So we had built this big data platform that was the backbone of what we did uh, with our offering. And we were transitioning that all to 100% of the cloud. We were we had to multi-tenant. We were already single tenant in the cloud to multi-tenant. So we were definitely doing some stuff behind the scenes to, on the tech side. We made the decision. We knew we were going to need money in, the, in a year out. We made the decision to tap the public markets. And the actual process... I had heard all sorts of different stories. My own experience on the actual process of bringing the company public was uh, that once you're in the hopper and you start going down the path, the advisors that you use are so good at this that that part is actually relatively straightforward. There's certainly a lot of stress around it, but relatively straightforward. And it was for us. Now, of course, again, afterwards, you've just gone out and sold your stock to all these different companies and, and all and you need to live up to your expectations. Yeah. So there's an additional level of stress that comes with it. But the actual process, the mechanics of it were pretty straightforward. Yeah. And did you like being a public company CEO? Uh, for the most part, I did. I really believe in what we were doing at the time, what the company continues to do as part of VMware. We talked every meeting, we talked about our, our vision, which was a world safe from cyber attacks. And I, I really believed in that. And there was some tough stuff along the way, being a public company CEO. Some of the public company investors are highly educated. The majority are not, uh, excuse me, highly educated on your, on your, on you as yeah. a company when they make the investment, especially for a, an early IPO company, they learn who you are over time. It takes time. I saw that progression. I enjoyed the experience of uh, doing that. Amazing. A lot of other areas we could dive into here, but maybe maybe we fast forward to within about a year or so, you guys ended up selling the company to, to VMware. I'd love to hear how that went and uh, what was kind of the, the thinking there and, and how the journey was within VMware. We brought the company public we were going through a, a platform transition uh, underneath the covers. The market also was was progressing uh, really fast with some very strong and, and very capable competitors uh, like CrowdStrike out in the marketplace and Microsoft coming increasingly into the market. And with the consolidation that we continue to all see in cyber, we had partnered with VMware for a couple of years, and as you just said, we made the decision after a number of conversations with them about what we could do inside of a larger organization with broader access to markets and by being able to bring our cyber uh, capabilities into the VMware platforms that we would see acceleration. Every large vendor in the world is going to has to have cyber capabilities built into their stack one way or another. Right. So that that was the core premise. That's why we, we ended up selling the company at the end of 2019, I think. The CEO at the time was Pat Gelsinger and yep. sold the company to VMware and became the essentially the the security business unit within VMware. Another experience, I'd been through that before a number of times, but never as the CEO. Yeah. Lots of twists and turns there. Actually, more twists and turns, I, I think, in many cases, on doing something like that than there is in, in the IPO process. Again, you got to make sure you're aligned on the mission and vision, you're aligned on the people, and then the numbers have to work. 
Yeah, no, I agreed. It's it's complex. I was, uh, as you know, on the other side of that at IBM Security, and we'd acquired probably about 10 companies into IBM Security. And I have to say the hardest person to figure out what to do with is the CEO coming into a large organization like that. So that's you in this particular case. I'm sure for you, it was it's very different, right? You were by now 13, 14 years at uh, you know running your own show, as it were, and uh, responsible for everything. It must have been a shock coming in and and being a, I mean, you were, I believe, the general manager of the cybersecurity business there. Obviously, a lot of responsibility and a lot of autonomy, but still, you're now part of a much bigger thing. That's right. That pretty much summarizes it. Being the CEO or the founder of a company and with a responsibility, if you're running that company, one of the, the things that I was the most proud of was the of the company of, of what I was running. And I, and I, uh, again, I'm sure you feel the exact same way and, and what we were trying to do for our customers and, and how we were trying to affect the world, being part of something else is equally powerful, that vision and mission of what you're part of, but it is different. And, and in the end, I couldn't make the same decisions I was making when I was running the company. I would say, okay, we were doing this. We should do this other thing now, and we're going to move resources in this way, and we're going to change our sales compensation in this way, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And now, suddenly, it was not just me and my team who were deciding I had a, a, a large number of other constituents that I had to go to to build consensus with and why this made sense because it might impact them, other business units, it might you know, impact compensation plans for other groups, et cetera. So everything gets much harder and figuring that out and then figuring out how to do it well, it is a lot of effort. It's, I, I, I have never worked in a lot since early in my career, I never worked in a large company as a senior leader. And it's a different role. Being a senior leader in a, in a, Big companies a very different role than being the CEO. Again, I'm sure you can actually you you know this better than I do. Yeah, no, and I I've kind of gone the different direction, right? Going from uh, big IBM to to this this seat. So both directions are are you have to be very careful and uh, and uh, as you said, different level of of control and autonomy and in the two different roles. So for sure. So. One of the things that I'm, I I want to ask you about, I don't want to get too personal, Patrick, but you know, throughout all this, you're also a father and a, a husband and, and and the like. I'm I'm curious just to how you were able to maintain semblance of balance throughout all of this. If you'd be comfortable talking about that, because I think it's insightful for people trying to do these types of jobs. We could do a whole session just on 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 figuring that out. And during my time running the company, you know, one of my core beliefs is that. We did not just go up into the right. And so one of my core beliefs is you have to pick a mountain or a hill, use your term, to climb to bring the team up. And I I was always very focused on making sure that we knew where we were going as a team, even if later on you make the decision to change that. That belief on always making sure that we're kind of going up this hill and we're aligned on doing it, uh, while it's simple to say it, in mind, it's all-consuming. It's all-consuming to make sure, all right, are we doing the right things? Are we climbing the right hill? Uh, how, are we doing all the things right? And so the balance on personal, for, for me, the balance was heavily weighted towards the work side, dramatically weighted towards the work side. As I've, I've joked with some of my friends since I'm no longer the CEO, you know, I, I sleep like a baby. 
and I didn't yeah. as the CEO. I'd like to say I did, but I felt tremendous responsibility to make sure that we were achieving what, what we had committed to and that we were all climbing up the hill together. For me, the only way I could do that is to have a partner, my wife, who, who really ran everything else in our life because I, while I was certainly there and present, work was very consuming. I don't know that I have any great hints there other than to say that one of the things I learned over the years was that building more and more time into my day and in my weeks uh, for thinking time, yeah, uh, solo thinking time is really, really important. And I didn't do enough of it early in my career. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I think blocking the calendar for both thinking and, and the balance points is the key to survival. So I think, I think you're on to probably one of the most important things that I've certainly uh, been trying to, to use as imperfect as I am at, at it as well, uh, to, your, to your point. And it feels weird, right? It feels a little weird. You put this, th- I, that's exactly what I used to do on my calendar, put a time where twice a week where, okay, I, no meetings. And I, I really just want to be able to take a step back and actually not do something, but actually think, are we doing, are we focused on the right things? Are we doing the right things? What am I worried about? What do we have to do more of? I don't know how you've made that adjustment, but it feels a little weird at first. And then you, at least for me, I found I really, I looked forward to it again. If I could, if I, if I didn't blow it up with some critical meeting. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think we're in the same boat here and on our efforts. So I totally can relate. So Patrick, I want to transition maybe a little bit the conversation you've gotten into into this during our discussion, but I think with all of your experiences, I'm sensing there's sort of a set of philosophies that you apply. And I thought maybe we could spend a few minutes on as you step back now, as you've transitioned out of VMware or thinking about what you do next, it seems you have a set of beliefs that you bring to these roles. And I'd love to kind of maybe walk through those and uh, and sort of understand how you think of being a CEO and how you think of being a leader. Yeah, for sure. And uh, a lot of these I built over years, some of them as CEO, some of them before I was a CEO. Again, I believe that great leaders, great operators always build a, a, a set, a framework or a set of beliefs on how they run their business. Some of, some people articulate those very clearly or need to have frameworks. I'm a framework guy. I really like that. I have them for many, many parts of the way we ran the business. I think that is so important. And I actually think saying what those are is really, really important because it ensures that for me and for the team around me, we're aligned on, well, this is how I think about things. And so and I have those for looking for your next, you know, your next role in a company. I have those for how you lead as a senior leader, et cetera, et cetera. For the company, I, I have, I, I said this to the team all the time, seven core beliefs or philosophies on how you build a great company. Seven. I, I want to hear the seven. I think people want to hear the seven, given the track record uh, and how you've applied them. I'd love to, I'd love to walk through those. Well, the, the, the first is, Pretty straightforward, and, and most uh, CEOs, founders, most people out there could probably get out of the seven, many of them right. But the first one is you need an aligned vision and mission on what you're trying to build, what you're trying to do. And it is surprising to me how many companies out there may have that, but don't articulate it or may not even have it. But usually most companies, especially early stage companies, have it. And then in many cases, you kind of lose it after a while because, oh, isn't this just obvious? But Having an aligned vision and mission is really, really important. Uh, 
and for a couple of reasons, you know, the number one reason is if you run a great company, you've got a lot of people who are making decisions every single day about should they go left or should they go right. If they truly understand what the company's trying to accomplish, they won't always make the right decision, but they're going to make more right decisions than wrong decisions because they understand what we're trying to do. So you, you have to have an aligned vision and mission. And then the second thing you do is you have to be able to, you have to say that. We started, we did monthly company meetings. And for years, the whole, for most of the time I was at Garden Black, we started every single meeting laying out what our vision and mission was. It sounds so simple and, well, it's, do you really need to do that? And the answer is, yeah, because you know what? Most of us, uh, there's a lot of things going on every day. And, and in the end, through osmosis, they would get it. You know, my team would get it. We would all get it. Everyone knew it in the company. So number one, aligned vision and mission. Well, and you're, adding, uh, you're adding so many employees. I see that here as well. I mean, you, you think you do a good job communicating something a year ago. And then a year later, you have you know, one or 200 more employees that haven't, weren't there at that time when, when maybe you developed an announced that mission. So it's, you have to keep repeating it, right? Yeah, that's right. And typically that vision and mission uh, are aligned with what's the value that you're going to offer to your customers out there in the marketplace. So ours was a world safe from cyber attacks. You're aligning around what you as a, as a company are trying to create and what you're trying to do for the customer that you're giving value to. That's number one. You got to do that and you got to hit it again and again and again. Number two is it's all about the team. You know, one of my core beliefs in tech, when I got into the tech in the 80s, I, I saw my particular experience set. I saw a lot of uh, situations where you had the smartest person in the room. And I thought, why? Maybe that's how tech companies get done. You've got, mm-hmm. you know, one person who kind of comes down from the mountain with this is how we're going to do it. And that's not true. And since then, obviously, we've all I've read lots of stuff about this over the years. And statistically, you know, uh, speaking, better companies in general make better decisions when you have a team and making, helping to drive those decisions and pushing on it and debating it, et cetera. So to me, great companies are built by great teams. It's all about the people. You have to make sure that you're you know, surrounding yourself with great people. And that doesn't mean everyone's the same. That's where I think diversity and inclusion comes in uh, because you want a different set of experiences. You want people who think not the same as you, again, so that you can debate and push on decisions. But it all comes down to the team. You need well-functioning teams. There's a whole set of things you got to do in order to make sure you're doing that well, but it's all about the team. Yeah, and that applies not just as a CEO, but uh, a VP building a team for a department. It's the same rule. I will say something I didn't understand earlier in career, but the most important team in the company is the senior team. If the senior team is not functioning as a team, it all rolls down. I used to say it's kind of like the foundation. It, it's a reverse. It's the foundation of the house and the, 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 the team, the senior team is kind of at the bottom. If that team's wobbly, the whole house is wobbly. If that team is super solid and locked in, it's not wobbly. And man, a lot of the other teams are going to be very solid as well. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. My third belief is, and which probably the one everyone remembers the most, but I, I had a, a no asshole rule. Yeah. I remember you told me about this years ago and I, I, uh, I've always kept it in mind. It's so eloquently stated. It's stuck in my mind. 
Yeah. And we've all seen it. And by the way, just to be very clear, what does that mean? That means arrogance or hubris, because we know that arrogance and hubris break the team. If we align on something as a team, and then I walk out the room, out of the room, and I do my own thing because I think I'm smarter than the rest of the team, then I break the team. And there's nothing that hurts the ability to build a great company, a great team, than by having an asshole on the team. And, 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 we have all seen this in different companies where we've been at, where there'll be a, an individual or, or in some cases a team where no one wants to deal with them, with him or her or with that team. And again, as I used to say, kind of jokingly, but those teams also tend to grow. It's like rabbits. I mean, one day you have one person who's not a team player. And the next thing you know, next quarter, two quarters, you got a whole team of people. And so you, you got to get that out. And the best way to do it is just to say it. We don't want that arrogance or that hubris in the company. So yeah. that's number three. Love it. Number four is, is run your own business. If you think about how great teams run, and by the way, not just teams, all the way down to individuals, they understand that they're and believe that they're running their own business. They're empowered to make decisions day in and day out about how they should be running their business. And they don't have to go to a supervisor, to a manager, to someone else to say, hey, is this okay what I'm doing? No, they're running their own business. Why is that so important and so fundamental to building a great company? If you have employees who are empowered and believe that they're running their own business, they're actually going to do much better work because they believe it's their own. Number two, every day when they get up, they're passionate about what they're doing. And from uh, a retention standpoint, you're going to have much higher retention when you have employees and teams who all believe, rightfully so, that they're running their own business. If you get up in the morning and you do not understand why your job is so important to the company and why running your own business is so important, if you don't understand that, then your manager is failing you. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I'm reading uh, the book by Frank Slotman, the CEO of Snowflake, and he says you want bus drivers, not bus passengers. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at. People that are every day get up and have a very clear sense that they can run their business. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Belief number five is the easiest, the, the, the fastest way to kind of break uh, running your own business is is the creation of friction inside of an organization, especially as you scale, as you go from, as you said, your your you know Devo is going through tremendous growth. We saw the same thing. All of that growth, all those new people coming on, it's easy to get friction. And so I used to talk a lot about this idea of no friction. And the easiest way to break friction is to is to over communicate inside of an organization. What I saw, what we've all seen, is that as organizations scale, or larger organizations, or even small organizations, that you'll have these situations where you get two different teams, or four different teams. We all are trying to do the right thing and run our own business. But my f- top three priorities: we all have too much to do. I'm going to do these three things, and they line up this way. Your top three priorities are different than mine. And so our priorities don't align. And so then I go to you and say, hey, I need your help in order to get blah done. And you say, no, I'm not doing it. I can't do it. And what I saw with friction was the biggest challenge is that we're all running so hard that we don't take the time to over-communicate, to actually say, well, whoa, wait a minute. Actually have that conversation, pick up the phone, send an email that's not a get this done or else, an email that says, let's talk about the situation. Because again, much of the time, this is about aligning priorities and getting understanding. And so you have to break friction down because friction builds up over time. Some of it, you got to revisit it and say, well, this decision we made four years ago to do blah, it doesn't work anymore. We got to change it. So no friction. 
a method we've used uh, here. It just really started about uh, six months ago is the OKR process. Did you end up using OKRs? We did at the end. Yep. 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 And I love OKRs. I think they're simple, elegant. But many other things to do besides OKRs, but I agree it's uh, communication. And I'm listening to every one of these, you know, giving myself a mental rating of, of where I am after just a year and a half <laughs> here. So it's it's very humbling. It's it's been the interview around and I could do a test at the end. And, and, yeah, um, no, no, let's yeah. do that. And maybe yeah. I need a little more time for that, uh, yeah. Patrick. And then and then six is is leadership is at every level in a company. I didn't come up with that phrase. I read that somewhere in my career. I don't remember where, but I so believe it. We are great companies are looking for leaders. One of the, the the things I was so proud of at Carbon Black, and again, I'm sure you're seeing this at Devo, is is promoting from within, finding great people who are talented, who are strong operating leaders, who can really scale in an organization. And leadership is not just about promoting people. It's not just about people who are managing. There are many individual contributors inside of an organization who are great leaders. They choose to say, I want to be an individual contributor, but I'm a great leader. There are senior, senior people inside of companies who are not great leaders. And not every senior leader is a great leader. What is leadership? Well, if you think about those rules I just kind of walked you through, the leaders are the, the team members, the individuals who you go to for advice. They're the people that say what they think. They're the people that understand what their the team or what they are trying to do, why what they do is so important. They embody everything I've just talked about. If you have a lot of strong leaders and the willingness to lead, which means you don't have you can't be afraid of failure. You got to embrace failure. If you have people who want to lead, the sky's the limit. The sky's the limit for what you can accomplish as a company. Yeah, and uh, I, I think a lot of people confuse title with uh, leadership capability, and uh, and and you see a huge difference among among people who can really lead. So I value that point immensely. It's critical. By saying it in the company, you open the door for that for people to step in and up into those leadership roles. And again, by leadership roles, I don't mean I'm leading a team. I mean leadership roles in the sense of I'm going to say what I think. Again, I may be an engineer building blah inside the product, but I'm going to say what I think in order to try and make us operate better, to break down friction, to have a better team, to do all these things. You want that in a company. You want that kind of a culture that in, that in, it really is open to, to promoting that idea of leadership across yeah. the company. Awesome. Awesome. So then what's the last one? Well, last one is, is in essence, uh, a little bit of where I started, which is in the end, it's all about the customer. We start with the customer with our vision and mission and everything that we do, everything I've just talked about is all about building a company, a business that's doing, creating some value, doing something of value for a customer. And we can never forget that. And as we scaled, you start to see more and more of your employees who aren't necessarily touching a customer. When you're small, everyone touches the customer all the time. But the whole reason we exist as a company, the whole reason Devo exists as a company is because you have a set of customers who are putting their faith and their trust in you, especially in cyber, where they're giving you money to say, okay, help make us safe. And so we can never forget that you always do what's right for the customer because that's why we exist. They pay our bills. They give us the money. They put their trust in us every day. Every day they think Carbon Black is keeping them safe. Every day they think Devo is keeping them safe. That is an immense responsibility. And uh, for all of us inside of an organization, we, we, we have to internalize the importance of that. 
I've heard you talk about these in, in pieces as you and I have, have met over the years, and I'm really happy that we captured all seven of them. And uh, I will be grading myself in private on them. And uh, we can, on a non-recorded line, uh, discuss, discuss them even more because I think it's fantastic and it's uh, for sure a journey. So Patrick, you're on a, a short break now. What do we expect next from you? Well, I've been saying to a lot of people, I spent 30 plus years building muscle memory, if you will, on what it takes to run companies and run teams. And, and I love everything I've done. And life's short. And so I'm taking a year, 12 months to, to really think through what's next and also try to break some of the habits of what I've built the last 35 years doing, which is, okay, this is what I do. I go, I work this many hours a week. I run a company, I run a team. And I want to take a step back from that and and try and break some of those habits. A little bit back to the think time we talked about, just to get some time to think and figure out what's next on the journey. And um, so that's what I'm doing. All right. Awesome. I get to a great place to uh, close things out on. Um, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us on Cyber CEOs Decoded. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, thank you to our audience for listening today. Be sure to join us for our next episode of Cyber CEOs Decoded. Mm-hmm.